0: Okay, thanks for having me, and thanks for coming um, Sort of at, you know, at night time, so I'm glad you could sort of uh, come. Hopefully this will be an interesting, illuminating sort of uh, next hour. So um, this talk is going to be based on a book I, I wrote. It came out sort of late last year, um, but it seems sort of more topical than ever, um, considering that North Korea keeps doing crazy things. So, um, you know, I guess I'll always have something to talk about as long as North Korea continues to exist. Um, basically, this book is about how North Korea survives, Uh, and specifically how it does, how it survives through doing business. Uh, And and sort of the key takeaway here is that North Korea is actually surprisingly good at business, despite what we tend to think about um, sort of when we characterize North Korea. And so I I first sort of came to this topic actually from two quotes by Kevin Rudd, who used to be the foreign minister and prime minister and then prime minister again. He might have done something in between. I can't can't remember. But in 2011, um, he wrote two op-eds um, within the same year. I mean, the first, he described North Korea as reclusive, isolated, paranoid, bizarre, sort of a throwback, sort of the, the 1984. Um, and the second, he said, we need to, we shouldn't be lulled into a false sense of security by how bad North Korea's economy is. They could be selling weapons, and they are selling weapons around the world to keep, basically keep their, their coffers stocked. And what was interesting about this is that we say, on the one hand, North Korea is this paranoid, isolated country. On the other hand, it's so good at selling weapons, we have to do, take extreme measures to stop it. Right? And, and this doesn't really seem to jive in some ways. Like, you know, sort of, It's so crazy that it's, it's really good at selling weapons, it's really good at doing business. Um, I mean, how many isolated, paranoid people do you know who are good at business? Right? I don't know. I mean, it's like sort of Howard Hughes, The Country, or something like that. Right. Um, so I, I was interested in sort of this juxtaposition between isolation and, and sort of, you know, sort of business acumen. So, I'll you know, sort of take you through a little bit about how I did this research, sort of what the conclusions are, I'll give you some examples about how North Korea does business, how it actually gets what it wants, All right. um, and we'll sort of take it from there, right? So here we have the Korean Peninsula, here's North and South Korea. Um, sort of North Korea is mostly bordered with, by China and Russia and then South Korea, right? So uh, in some sense, it's isolated um, because obviously you can't really easily cross the border between North and South Korea. Uh, on the other hand, you know, there's a really long border with China. And so as we'll see, this, this involves a lot of business that goes, goes across that border. So the key question is, what does North Korea's business look like? How does it do business? So to answer that question, I, I want to start off with where we actually came from. Like, why is North Korea so good at business in the first place? And the answer is because its economy collapsed. Right? Um, this is not original to me, um, but you know, this is sort of a progression about where North Korea's entrepreneurship actually came from. At the end of the Cold War, the Soviet Union collapsed. China basically couldn't give North Korea any more aid for a while. Um, as a result, uh, North Korea's economy collapsed. Um, sort of, it, it lost all its fertilizer. It lost all its oil shipments. It lost the ability to generate power, which meant it couldn't actually irrigate its fields anymore. The fields went fallow. Um, There was then a series of droughts and floods that destroyed North Korea's infrastructure, right? Um, Its food distribution system broke down, which led to the Great Famine. Um, Depending on who you ask, this, this meant between half a million and two million people died. At the same time as that, basically the state broke down, right? State control broke down, Uh, The North Korean state was unable to control the movements of the population. Uh, The population had to go on the move to survive. Um, And they essentially adopted a series of survival mechanisms, right? Some escaped to China. Some went into the market economy. They started selling their their own goods, their own household items. They started selling whatever they could as a way of getting money to survive. The North Korean state could no longer take care of them. Others who were involved with the state started selling off state assets. So they just basically solid assets that weren't actually being used to produce anything anymore. The result was you have the rise of an entrepreneurial economy that formally doesn't exist. But it still supports, you know, a fairly large percentage of the population, right? And so sort of this is what Steph Haggard calls sort of economic transition without reform. North Korea never reformed, but it did transition from being a Stalinist state to something else. And so the rise, so basically sort of, what you see is citizens who need to survive, who need to find food and other supplies, they become entrepreneurial. And you see sort of the rise of sort of private markets in North Korea. And so this is a picture of a sort of private market. There are also semi-private markets now where the the government or the state actually owns the market and they allow people to trade there. Um, But, you know, what you see is this this is how private citizens often survive, by by engaging in these these private markets. And we'll sort of see what that means for how we think about North Koreans doing business. We also see, at all levels of the state, a high level of entrepreneurialism, right? And it's this entrepreneurialism that I think makes North Korea a lot less isolated than you think, right? So this is a picture of a North Korean restaurant um, in Shenyang, uh, in northeastern China. Um, it was taken three years ago by me, so, you know, this is sort of fairly recent. It is actually down the street from an Angel In Us shop, which is a South Korean um, coffee, waffles, and ice cream shops, right? So North Korean and South Korean stores are actually right next to each other in China, right? And so from the first instance, you say, well, they're not actually as isolated as you'd think, right? The second instance, the second sort of question you would arise from this is, what kind of country has its own restaurant chain, right? I mean, I guess there's Outback Steakhouse here, but it's not even an Australian restaurant, right? So, um, you know, we see sort of North Korean restaurants all around Asia and even some in Europe, that obviously someone is, is using to, to make money. Right? The third interesting um, thing about sort of this picture uh, is that if you look at, at the Chinese, it says xiang Ro guan, right? Um, and xiang Ro is, means fragrant meat. It's actually, a, it means dog meat in Chinese, right? So North Korea, is, they're actually advertising something that's sort of different from the other restaurants uh, in the area. So they, they sort of at least understand how to sort of operate market niches for North Korea. And so this sort of leads to, I think, something that's quite interesting, right? North Korea is a brand, right? People go to North Korean restaurants, they, they sort of are interested in North Korea, maybe you're interested in North Korea, because it, it is a paranoid, isolated, exotic country. And they know that, right? And they're selling that to you, right? Um, and so, I mean, these are sort of, I mean, this is what you see. I mean, these, the picture, this is the picture on the, the front cover of the book. Um, these are three North Korean waitresses in a restaurant in Dandong in China um, that was taken about a year ago, right? They are selling, I mean, and if you go to a North Korean restaurant, almost every evening about 7.30, they will have a song and dance performance for you, um, often of North Korean patriotic songs and sometimes of John Denver, right? So, I mean, this is, this is, something, that, I mean, this is something that we should take seriously, right? North Korea is paranoid and isolated, but it's also able to take advantage of that paranoid isolation to make money and to survive, right? Uh, and, and sort of the restaurants are only sort of one example of that. So how does it actually work? Right? Um, so here we sort of get into you know a little bit of theory, but hopefully not too much. Right? When we talk about sort of North Korea having gone through an economic transition without reform, what we really mean, in some sense, is that a large percentage of the North Korean population now support themselves in ways that are formally illegal. Private property is still technically illegal in North Korea. Yet there's all these people doing business in North Korea. How do they do that? It's because, in some sense, they've blended legality and illegality together. They've blended formality and informality together. If you say, what does the formal economy look like in North Korea? Oftentimes, it it sort of doesn't look like anything you'd expect it to look like. um, And the informal economy is actually what's powering Um, the country's growth, such as it is. At the same time, as we'll see, the idea that the state is doing this is, again, not necessarily true. A lot of non-state actors, private businesses, are actually operating as if they were public businesses. And in fact, they look like public businesses, right? So what you see is the situation where North Koreans are basically doing business by being adaptable, by being opportunistic. They will sell anything and do business in any way they can, and by being very ambiguous, right? you almost can think of the entire economy or the entire country as operating in a twilight. Right? The things that actually work don't officially exist. The things that, that don't work are what you see before you. Right? And, but somewhere in the middle is what, as how people are actually operating. Right? I, mean, I mean, in the Q&A, we can say, this helps North Koreans survive. It's not quite very good for foreign investment, um, which is why North Korea is probably not a good foreign investment opportunity. Um, but it, it is a situation where they've actually become really good at doing this kind of business. And we'll see examples of this. Okay, so just to give you a sense of of how this works, we can think of five different kinds of economic actors in North Korea. At the very lowest level, we have private traders, the people you saw in the markets. They're just selling their goods, selling excess vegetables, um, selling whatever they can, selling imported goods from China. They do business in in North Korean won or in hard currency, um, which here is defined as anything that's not North Korean won. Um, and they're sort of at the low end. Some of them are, have gotten wealthy, but in general, they're just low-level private people, right? at, the, at, the, at the center, you have the central state, right? Kim Jong-un and the, the sort of the elite companies that support him, right? And, you know, to a certain extent, this is, you know, what you would expect, right? They will do his bidding. They, were, they are the ones who sort of sell North Korea's weapons. They're probably the ones that um, Coven Red was talking about. He talks about sort of North Korea selling its weapons. But then, in the middle, there's this whole, again, twilight area, which is, in some sense, where a lot of the action is going on for how we think about North Korea. One of the things that North Korea has done, and this is where it departed very early from, sort of, Stalinist dogma, is, is sort of, decades ago, and sort of ramping up over the past 20 years, it basically established state trading companies that were empowered to go out and make money, in any way they could. Right? Um, they, they, got some, they got permits to be able to sort of sell things from North Korea. Um, they sort of would be able to import things from, uh, from other places. Uh, and oftentimes when you hear, a, um, hear about a North Korean businessman being arrested in, say, Malaysia, for example, uh, which just, was just again in the news, um, it's probably employees of those companies that we're talking about when we talk about North Korean businessmen. Right? They are state companies, or public companies, but the way it works, as we'll see, is as long as they can, they can get the quotas, as long as they can meet the profit margin for Kim Jong-un, to a certain extent, they're free to do what they want beyond that. In the middle-middle, we have hybrid entities. Right? And these are entities which are often state officials going and doing their own business, um, sort of making money on the side, right? selling off state assets. Right? Um, sort of a couple of years ago, I read an article about basically state officials uh, making crystal meth on the side. Right? Um, as a way to raise money for what they were supposed to give to Kim Jong-un. Um, but, you know, there's also these, these sort of, what are essentially private companies. They're private entrepreneurs. They want some legal status, but private companies are, are technically illegal in, in North Korea, so they basically buy the status. Right? Um, you say, you go to a state official and you say, if you protect me, if you register my company as a state-owned company, then I'll give you a portion of the profits and a fee, and sort of you appoint me as the manager of this, of this company. So it's really a private company that looks like a public company, right? And if you have enough money, you can even buy a public position, right? So in the book, you know, I talk about uh, someone, you know, sort of me and my research assistants talked to who had gone to the trouble of buying a colonel um, a rank for one of his associates in North Korea for 100000 U.S. dollars. That's how much it costs. It's a going rate if you want to be a senior officer in the military in North Korea. Right? And once he got, once he, his sort of associate now had a colonel rank, he could use it to protect this private businessman uh, in whatever he did. So this leads us to sort of see how North Koreans survive. Right? And, and we, can think of, we can sort of think of, you know, from the bottom all the way to the top. Right? If you were talking about regular citizens, the average person on the street, right? first of all, in general, they're not doing very well. Malnutrition is still pretty bad in North Korea. Right. Oftentimes, if they're doing business, they're selling goods, whatever they can, in private markets or maybe even in sort of public markets, depending on, on the city. If they have family connections in China, they can trade it with China. Right. Uh, and one of the interesting things here is that you know North Korea actually, again, is not as isolated as you think precisely because there are so many family connections on both sides of the border. Um, and again, sort of regular citizens can pay off state officials for official business status, right? So, again, often what we think of state companies are actually private companies that are, are paying off state officials. Then we have sort of these lower-level state officials, right? They're the ones who collect the money. They're supposed to pass the money up the, up the food chain, so to speak, to their, to their um, superiors. Right? Um, they, they will protect private businesses for a fee. They will run their own businesses on the side. Um, but basically, they are using their state status as a way to, to survive. Then we have higher level state officials who can you know, collect fees from lower levels of the government and again sort of pass them up the, up the chain. Um, they're the ones who can get state trading company rights and then sell what they, what they can. Oftentimes, you are, if, you don't have, if you have the right to sell something and you don't actually have the ability to sell it, you can lease that right to another company which then can then use your quota. And so you end up with a system that's almost like a market in trading rights in North Korea. And then you have Kim Jong-un himself, who who sort of, you know, collects money from all the rungs, sort of below him. And obviously has his own personal offices that run businesses and make money for him. And what we see here then, and again, this is not my characterization, this is sort of done by South Korean economists especially, is that North Korea essentially operates like a food chain. Yes? Right, yeah. Right. I mean, this isn't the t- totality of North Korea's economy, right? These are people who are not otherwise able to support themselves. Are right. right. Well, I mean, it depends, on, it depends on who you ask, obviously. I mean, one of the first things you would, we should take away from this is that numbers are never really going to tell us that much in North Korea. But um, there was a recent survey of North Korean defectors who are probably going to have a higher percentage of businessmen um, than, sort of other, than the average North Korean, and about 70% of them had made some sort of money from side businesses before they came to South Korea. Right. So, in some sense, if you want to survive, you can't just survive on your, on your government salary. Right? It's like $1 a month. You have to do something to make money besides that. Right? So even if you're a teacher, the teachers might have a side business as well. Right? Um, I mean, that's sort of the, that's sort of the issue here. You, you, you cannot simply survive unless you're the very elite of society simply by, by sort of what the government gives you, right? um, Especially since the government will always pay you in one and won are not necessarily going to buy all that much, um, you know, in, the, in the sort of the informal economy. Right? But what you see here is a situation where it's kind of like a food chain, right? At the very bottom, you have the private traders. They are, they are sort of paying money to the people above them, who in turn pay money to the people above them, who in turn pay money to the people above them, um, all the way to the top, right? So, I mean, sort of the, the South Korean Congress will de- describe describe it as essentially there's an apex per at the top who feeds on everyone below him, which is Kim Jong-un, right? And from seeing pictures of him, obviously, he feeds, he feeds a lot, right? So um, what this means, though, and I think this will have implications for how we think about North Korea's economy. One thing it means is that while, while I think Western policymakers are often focused on North Korea, sort of their weapon sales, their, their sort of WMDs, things like that, those make money for the regime, but they're not even necessarily where most of the money consistently comes from, right? Um, If they're feeding on all the people below them, then it's actually this economic activity that's making money for the regime. So what about Kim Jong-un, right? Um, So one of the things that is interesting about Kim Jong-un and sort of what we've seen is that politically, obviously, the sort of North Korea has not been particularly stable since he came to office. Right? We've seen lots of purges, right? we've seen um, probably ramping up of provocations, we've seen more nuclear tests, um, we see basically a lot, of, a lot of political instability seemingly at the top in North Korea. What's interesting then is that if we look at the, what data we have, North Korea is actually surprisingly stable, economically, under Kim Jong-un. Right? Uh, one of the things you see is that upon Kim Jong-un coming to power, um, even as he started approaching people, there sort of, were sort of assurances from North Korean officials to the Chinese, which you can read about in the Chinese media, that North Korea is still open for business. They still wanted your investment money. They still wanted to do, do business with you. Right? Nothing's changed. It's just a new guy at the top. Right? And in fact, Kim Jong-un has, has sort of explicitly emphasized economic growth as one of his, one of the two pillars of, of sort of his policies. Right? And so what we see is a situation where essentially we have political instability at the top, but economic stability at the bottom, right? And we can see this uh, in this chart here. So this is not in the book, but this is one of the side projects we did. Um, I have a research assistant who, we, we can go into, you know, sort of more detail if we, if we want, but basically was able to smuggle daily food prices out of, Pyong- out of North Korea, right? And so then we, we basically sort of mapped them um, over a five-year period to see sort of, well, what they look like, right? Uh, and we, there are a couple things that we got from this chart. Right. First, there's a lot of instability here. While Kim Jong Il was alive, once Kim Jong Un comes into power, North, Korea, North Korea's prices actually get more stable. Right. Um, you know, you know, sort of, and this is for basics, right? Rice, pork, cabbage, uh, Pollock's very stable, but that's sort of not necessarily stable for the average North Korean. What we also see is, and this is sort of not necessarily you can't see this on this chart, North Korea's exchange rate has also been stable for the past couple of years, right? I years. Mean, this, this economy is not doing well. I don't want to sort of say that this is doing well, but it's actually not as in- unstable as you think. It's actually doing better than you'd think from what we see in terms of the political morass around us. Um, and this may change, obviously. Um, but again, this is sort of something you have to deal with if you're thinking about what to do about North Korea. Um, it's, it's not something where we could say, well, North Korea is basically collapsing economically. It might later, but it doesn't look like it's done that for the past five years. Okay, so I, I want to talk now about, about how sort of these trade networks actually work, right? So this is Dandong on the left of this picture, and Sinuiju is on the right in this picture. Um, you can tell which one is North Korea. Um, Dandong is the, is the sort of major trading point for North Korea's formal trade um, between China and North Korea. Uh, and Dandong itself has gotten very wealthy from trading with North Korea. Um, uh, so there must be something to trade there, right, even though, you know, itself is not necessarily looking as wealthy. So the question is, well, what's going on? How are these trading networks work between these, between these two cities and between these two countries? Right? Uh, and this doesn't go up to all the way to 2016, but we can see that trade between China and North Korea has been increasing. It's dropped off a little bit over the past three years since this, this slide was made, but in general, trade with China is going, is sort of has gone up um, on a year-on-year basis for a while now. So again, it's not like North Korea is, is super isolated. We can also see the bridge between China and North Korea. Right? Um, this is, again, the bridge that is sending goods over to North Korea, these are, are trucks full of tires that are being delivered to North Korea. Um, there's also a railroad bridge so for the train that goes between um, Shenyang and, and sort of uh, Pyongyang. And again, so North Korea is doing business with China. Right? Um, it's not necessarily doing business all that efficiently. Um, I, didn't, I don't have a picture here, but there is an unfinished bridge several miles south of here, which is designed to be a much better bridge than this one, um, that the Chinese finished and the North Korean never built a road to. So it actually ends in a field in North Korea, right? They built a city next to that bridge called New Dandong, uh, which is supposed to have almost a million people in it. It has no one. So obviously it's a bad place to buy property. Um, and so in, in some sense, yeah, we don't want to overplay this, right? But, in, but North Korea is trading with China, and we are seeing trade go back and forth. So how does that work? Okay, so this is a building in Dandong. It is an utterly unremarkable building. Right. It looks totally oring, ordinary and boring. Right. Um, there is a North Korean restaurant in the, in the first floor of this building. Um, this is where a large number of North Korean trading companies are based in China, in this building. Right. Um, and this is, ha- this is where they physically do business in order, to, in order to acquire things that North Korea wants to either support its, its sort of weapons of mass destruction programs or just sort of build its economy. So in the course of sort of doing research for this book, I, I essentially went and I sort of talked to Chinese businessmen who were doing business with North Koreans. Um, and you know, after several bottles of baijiu, they were willing to talk to me. Um, so from what I remember, which is hazy oftentimes, um, you know, they would tell me how they do business with with the North Koreans. And so this is sort of one sort of flowchart for how North Korea acquires what it wants. And I should say, this is for both legal and illegal items, right? They're not different. The the ways in which North Korea gets what it wants, whether it's sanctioned or not, is not actually different, right? So so in that sense, we're not really talking about some sort of separate network that that deals with weapons and separate network that deals with, you know, sort of Hello Kitty dolls, right? They're the same people doing the same things. So say I'm a North Korean trading company. I have an office in that totally unremarkable building in, in, in Dandong. Right, I want to buy something from, from China. Right. I contact a Chinese trading company, usually through personal contacts, right? And I make the order. Right. The Chinese trading company will then go to its suppliers and place the order, often in China, often in Southeast Asia. Um and they will sort of then have it you know sent to sent to sort of northeastern China. From there, they can then get it through Chinese customs with a bribe, um, which then brings it on to North Korean customs, who then sort of eventually sort of get it back to the North Korean buyer. Right? And this, is, this all seems very, you know, fairly sort of pedestrian. The question is, how do you actually pay? Right? So if you're North Korean, how do you pay? I mean, many of the sanctions that have been put in place, especially in the past couple of years, are financial. The answer, having talked to these Chinese trading companies, is that North Korea... North Korean banks have branches in China, or at least they did a couple years ago. Um, they are unmarked, again, in unremarkable buildings, but if you're a trading company, you know where to go to get your money, right? Um, they will have shell accounts all over East Asia, in China and Southeast Asia, that you can access. Um, and they'll also have trusted partners in China, and we'll see sort of how money is transferred between North Korea and China and South Korea a little bit later, who will then basically sort of take the money and pay you in cash, right? I should say that the trading companies themselves, the Chinese trading companies, also have shell companies. Right? So oftentimes you have two shell companies dealing deal with each other. Right? Shell companies, you know, all the way down. It's like turtles, right? Um, and so what we see in a situation where there's this complex network of trading companies that are dealing business with each other, that are sort of covering for each other. So, I mean, the China- one of the Chinese trading company representatives told me if they hit up against a quota for, for exports to North Korea for any particular item, they basically have the the goods shipped through another trading company in their network who hasn't used the quota, which they can then use to sort of um, get get past Chinese customs. So even sort of setting quotas on coal, for example, will not necessarily stop the companies from from getting through through customs and getting into North Korea. And so it's sort of this situation here, right? One of the lessons you can take away from this, and we say, well, how does North Korea get what it wants? whether it's regular items or whether it's missile components, the answer is they have someone else do the work for them. I mean, that's the basic idea. Right? What better way to get around sanctions than, than, than by not being involved at all? Right? Right. Um, and so, you know, in some sense, this is, this is, again, how it works. And if you look at the most recent UN report um, that sort of looked into sanctions violations as of last month, this, this general pattern still holds. Right, and you can see this, right? So this is a map of the routes that um, basically dual-use items, sort of weapons components uh, for missiles and sort of nuclear weapons uh, and chemical and biological weapons, um, were shipped to North Korea over the past 30 years. Um, and what you can see is that North Korea has a series of countries that, that these items go through. I mean, some of them are shipped directly to North Korea, although recently that's sort of been less the case if we were to look at this only in the past five years, Right? But over the past 30 years, North Korea's had a series of countries that basically do its work for them. Many people were surprised that the first country that was actually helping North Korea was Japan. Right? Most of the goods actually went through Japan to get to North Korea, right, until 2006 or so. Then, for a period of time, they went through Taiwan. Right, and you see Taiwanese companies basically helping North Korea get goods into the country. And now, finally, it's, it's sort of shifted to, to China. Uh, which, again, North Korea now has become more dependent on China, but, again, we have a situation where you never really know if you're shipping a, a sort of item to China whether that's going to North Korea or not. Okay, so you can also see this working at sort of how North Korea works at a much lower level as well. So in terms of regular people, how are they transferring money? And, again, this is an example of a trade network or a network that supports trade for regular people. And it sort of shows, again, how ingenious in some ways North Koreans have become. Right? Say you're a North Korean refugee. You're making some money in, in South Korea. You want to send some money back to a relative in North Korea. Right. You can't just wire the money across the DMZ. Right. You would call a broker in South Korea, um, oftentimes only by using your mobile phone. The broker then will transfer money to a broker that he has in China. Right. So you give, him, you give the broker the money, he transfers the money into China. Right. The broker in China then we'll call a broker in North Korea, right? Um, and they will, set her, they will set her, settle their accounts, you know, later. So the broker in, the broker in North Korea has a, series, has a pile of cash sitting in North Korea. He goes over to the person you want to send money to, and just hands them the money in cash. Right? Um, and then later, sort of when all is said and done, the, the, the sort of the cash, the, the accounts are settled between the broker in China and the broker in North Korea. Right? Sometimes it's through a cross-border transfer, sometimes it's just through adding up the accounts over time. This is actually very similar to the, the sort of the Middle Eastern style of transferring money called hawala. Right? This is like North Korean hawala. Right? But what's interesting about this is that it relies on, again, totally informal, right? it is totally illegal, right? uh, it's, totally, it's totally non-state in some sense, but it fulfills a need that North Koreans have, which is to get money from outside the country into North Korea. And so this sort of shows, I think, the entrepreneurialism of North Koreans, um, sort of no matter where they are in the world. Okay. So what does this all mean, right? So this is a North Korean village as seen from China. They're not that far away from each other. Um, there's another picture I have, which I didn't show you, where um, China's actually turned the North Korean border into a tourist attraction, so you can go there, you can be sort of maybe a meter from North Korea, and you can have yourself have a picture of yourself taken with a um, in a sort of a Qing Dynasty outfit for some reason. Um, what does this all mean, right? I, I think well, he was going to talk about this more, but I, I think sort of one of the things to take away from this is that North Korea does have ways to survive, right? And it's, it survived in part from doing business. That doesn't mean it's it's prospering. This is never going to make North Korea wealthy. So, in some sense, it's never going to sort of get it out of the fact that it's ultimately a paranoid, isolated, sanctioned state. But it's enough to sort of stay alive. Right. And it's enough for some people to get very wealthy. And it's not just people who are connected to the state. It's also private businessmen as well, who might have used their connections to, to become um, wealthier. Right. What it also means, and I think sort of this is key, it also means that the average person who is doing business is no longer dependent on the government for survival. Yes, they might have jobs. Uh, yes? say become very wealthy, what millionaires? Are billionaires? Well, I would say some of them are millionaires. I'm not sure I would say anyone are billionaires. A million but million dollars. Po- probably, right? I mean, I, I'm not going to say how many, but it's, it's enough, right? Um, some of them are very wealthy, some are not. Otherwise, most people are just scraping by, which is true of, of any of any economy, right? Um, where was I? So, when well, you, well, you see a situation where many people are not depending on the government survival, even if they have government jobs, government jobs are not actually paying for their survival. It's something else, right? And, it, but, and you say, in some ways, you would say, well, this means that people can rebel, perhaps. But the flip side of this is the government itself no longer feels that they actually need to cater to the population to survive, right? it used to be the legitimacy of the state in North Korea was partly based on the state taking care of you. The state doesn't even pretend to take care of you anymore. Right? So in that sense, you say, well, hurting the population no longer is, a, is necessarily a concern for Kim Jong-un, which I, I think should give us pause when we think about um, trying to sort of separate Kim Jong-un from the population. What it also says is that Kim Jong-un is He's not he may not be, and again, numbers not really a useful figure here, but he may not be as dependent on what we think of as sanctioned stuff as we'd like to think. Right? Um, if if it is true that sort of the, the central government is collecting a lot of money from people basically doing all these semi illegal activities within North Korea, sanctioning sort of the sales of weapons may not actually harm them all that much. Right. They have more stable re- flows of income that they can rely on. So, this is a picture um, of sort of the, the guidelines you're supposed to follow when you um, go to the North Korean border. Um, and sort of, the, it's in cartoon form for, for sort of easy understanding. Um, and so, one of the pictures here is um, that if you're in a boat in China, you're not supposed to throw things over to the North Korean side. Right? Um, and sort of, I guess, sort of show good taste if you look at the Chinese for what this person is illegal throwing into North Korea, it's food. You're not supposed to throw food into North Korea. Um, so, so in some sense, you know, what we see here is a situation where North Korea is not as icy as we think. It's still very poor, right? Um, it's, it's sort of, to the extent it has money, it has money in spite of itself, um, not because of anything the government has done. Right? Um, but it, it should cause us to think about sort of, well, what does this mean for how we, how we think about North Korea, um, and ultimately for how we, how we deal with it, um, if we are Donald Trump or the Australian government or, or whoever.